Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's primary wrapped up last night with a surprising upset in the three-way Republican race for U.S. Senate. You can listen to coverage on Connecticut Public throughout the day and online at ctpublic.org. And coming up tomorrow, we'll have more analysis of the election where we live. Today, we focus on new research from multiple studies highlighted recently at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in San Diego. Studies show high blood pressure during pregnancy, consumption of highly processed foods, and the loss of smell are all predictors of cognitive decline. Coming up, we talk to Dr. Amy Sanders, medical director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center. And later, Dr. Carl Hill from the Alzheimer's Association talks to us about new research on how experiencing discrimination and racism increases the risk of memory loss. Now, are you or someone in your family impacted by Alzheimer's? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Nationally, two-thirds of women have Alzheimer's, and two-thirds of women are caregivers for someone who has the disease. There are six million Americans living with Alzheimer's. That's according to the latest figures from the Alzheimer's Association. And in Connecticut, that's 80,000 people. Joining me first is a Connecticut couple from Milford. On Zoom with us, Sandy and George Carlino. George has early stage Alzheimer's and is in an Eli Lilly clinical trial in New Haven. Sandy and George, welcome to our show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, George, my producer tells me that you turned 69 this week. A happy early birthday, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so so tell tell us a little bit about yourselves. I'll, I'll start with you, George. I mentioned that you live in Milford. Uh, so tell us about uh, your life there and what you did as a career. Uh, I used to be a CNC machinist uh, for a manufacturing company uh, for aerospace uh then things started going a little bit array for me and i had to pack it in so um trying to deal with everything and just do the best i can mm. sandy um george had mentioned uh, that things started to go a little awry so can you describe when you and your husband noticed that something was wrong and then you went to the doctors to find out uh, in the I'd say from about honestly about 2015 onward, he really displayed a lot of um, memory issues. He complained a lot about um, not being able to stay awake. He and, and he he would um, he he would just forget things. I would tell him something and he would completely forget about it. As an example, I try and like tell him dinner's gonna be ready in five minutes. Okay, he he would literally leave or go somewhere else and completely forget. So just weird things, and um, he 
he fell asleep driving home to, he, he kind of fought going to a doctor, didn't think anything was wrong. I finally made an appointment with a neurologist and he agreed to go. And on his way home to get ready to go to the neurologist appointment, he fell asleep driving and got in a, a minor accident. No one was hurt or anything, but that was actually the last day he worked. Mm. From that point forward, it's been an adventure. That must have been so frightening uh, when when you heard about that accident, Sandy. And so when was George diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's? It was, um, I think, around, excuse me, May of 2019, Mm. April, May timeframe. And we were very lucky. The neurologist immediately referred us to clinical trial and asked if we were interested. And uh, that's what we've been doing ever since. Mm. And George, how are you doing today? Uh, doing okay. A little tired, uh, but I'm I'm fine. Mm. Do you so, have uh, children and grandchildren nearby? Uh, yeah. Well, that that's we, good to have I, uh, relatives around. Uh. <laughs> we have a few of them in the house with us right now. Yeah. Oh, good. Lisa. Yeah. So you have good support uh, from family. Um, Sandy, you'd mentioned that uh, you were immediately, George was immediately enrolled in, in the clinical trial. My understanding is that was suddenly stopped. What happened there? Uh, that was, um, it was a Biogen trial. And uh, I, as I understand, uh, the FDA had approved one Biogen Alzheimer's drug and just a, a few months later, Biogen stopped this other study for a different drug. I'm assuming it was because the other drug had been approved and they were going to concentrate on that instead. Uh, I think also they were getting not great results, just kind of middle of the road results from the trial that he was on. So, uh, You're hearing uh, Sandy and George Carlino, who live in Milford, as we talk about Alzheimer's, including a new research that was highlighted at the International Alzheimer's Association in a conference in San Diego recently. I wanted to bring into our conversation Dr. Amy Sanders, who's medical director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center, also a medical scientific advisory council member at the Alzheimer's Association Connecticut chapter. Dr. Sanders, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. So we heard a little bit from Sandy and George, including um, this uh, clinical trial that they referred to that was suddenly stopped. Is that a common struggle for Alzheimer's patients and families uh, uh, when a, a clinical trial is suddenly stopped? And, and what should the patient do to help find a, maybe a different trial or treatment? Well, many times when people are enrolled in a clinical trial, they're enrolled uh, either through a sort of freestanding clinical research organization, and there's a big prominent one in New Haven, or they're enrolled under the auspices of an Alzheimer's disease research center, such as uh, is findable at Yale. And many times, if if an organization is involved in clinical trials, they are involved in more than one. If somebody is in a trial that is suddenly stopped, then you might need, if 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 it's been a pharmaceutical trial, and many of them are, meaning that you're taking a medication, then you might need what's called a washout period. You might need to wait a little 
uh, between uh, the trial that was stopped and being enrolled in a new trial. And then each clinical trial has its own set of inclusion and exclusion criteria that any, any hopeful enrollee would have to meet. Right. So Sandy and George, I understand now George is enrolled in the Eli Lilly clinical trial in New Haven. So can you tell us a little bit about that, Sandy? Sure. Uh, it is, the name is Trailblazer. Um, I know it is, I actually have it in front of me. Do, oh dear. Donanamab, uh, it's phase three. And so I can tell you that the, it's a world of difference between the, the Biogen trial and the Trailblazer trial. And, and both trials are, are double blind studies. So you don't know whether you're on the mm-hmm. drug or not. However, um, since he's been on, on the Trailblazer trial, he, he, he's changed incredibly. He's kind of coming back to who he used to be. He would have the sundowning and, and you know, go through all of these trials and tribulations. And we actually referred to our life as a combination of 51st dates and Groundhog Day. Mm. <laughs> and that's the truth. And he's he's just changed immensely. He's he's much more in control. He can actually kind of feel when he's starting to go into a downward spiral. And he's got he's developed a lot of tools for himself to kind of stop himself from doing it. And he communicates with me, right. which is the most important thing. And George, tell us uh, how you have noticed uh, your uh, difference now that you're in this trial. Uh, I do have a little bit more energy to get outside now, uh, especially when it's sunny. And uh, and I just put around the yard and do things. And, you know, and it does help because before that, you know, it, I would be staying in the house just about 24-7 doing nothing. Just staring into space. Yeah. yeah. Or just watch yeah. TV, just being a vegetable, so to speak. So it yeah. sounds like this sounds like this uh, clinical trial. It's really given you a lot of, of hope. I I believe so. I believe so. And hopefully, you know, it's going to help a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandy earlier used the term sundowning, which I know some listeners have heard of and, and know about it. But can you describe um, when that has happened to you? You know how you're feeling, and, and Sandy, what you observe. Um. <laughs> Uh, it's not fun at all. Uh, he just he climbs, he just literally goes inside himself, and you really have to see it to understand it. But uh, he 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 gets very cold, like uh, in in a heat wave. He's got socks on and and sweaters and long pants and blankets and and he just it just like grabs him and takes him down a rabbit hole where he will not communicate i'll ask him are you okay fine that kind of of things so um we've learned now now again thank god it doesn't happen as often as it did because it really was daily and you could almost set your clock to it it would be with him, it would be like early afternoon-ish. But um, but now he actually is saying, you know, I, I think something's happening. So what he does now is he tells me that. And then he I get him another blanket and he goes to sleep. 
Mm-hmm. And then when he wakes up, don't you agree? He's yeah. so much better. He's back to normal. So I, I'm grateful. Yeah. George, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, when it's it starts with me, it for some reason, my toes get cold. And then it's like a negative energy that is starting to penetrate up through my body. And that's when, you know, something has to be done. It's like whether just going, you know, into, uh, you know, just go to sleep. Uh, I've been taking walks more, to, you know, just around the neighborhood. You know, I don't go too far. But, uh, you know, it. but, you know, it. the bad thing was is that, you know, when I wasn't communicating with Sandy, she couldn't figure anything out. Because I can't figure anything out. I don't really know what was happening to me. Mm. So uh, it's uh, trial and error, but I think it, it, we are progressing and trying to figure it out. One thing uh, that, that he says every time is that he gets he's scared. He's afraid. Yeah. And, and he feels all alone. He just feels lonely. And he'll say, I don't understand why I feel lonely. I'm not alone. But, but this is what's happening to me. So thank yeah. God he's communicating it. Yeah. So I don't know if any other people have that because, you know, we can't communicate with others that are going through probably the same thing that I am. Mm. But we don't have any contacts because of well, when COVID, COVID yeah. came in and everything stopped. So. Well, Dr. Sanders is still with us from Hartford Healthcare. Uh, did you want to add to uh, the discussion in terms of, you know, describing sundowning and what uh, patients with Alzheimer's experience, Dr. Sanders? Well, one thing that we know, and certainly that I have experienced in my clinical practice, is that for Alzheimer's disease, there is simply no universal playbook. So the experience that George and Sandy have had with his sundowning is uniquely his. That doesn't mean that other people with Alzheimer's disease don't sundown. They do, but they have their individual versions of how it affects them. And sundowning is a common, although poorly understood, aspect of some of the behavioral and psychiatric side effects of having Alzheimer's disease. And it sounds to me like Sandy and George are superlative observers. And once you can observe what the changes are, then sometimes you can intervene to help improve the situation. And then George has also had the additional possible benefit of of being in a clinical trial that um, has also helped him sort of manage uh, the, the sundowning better. I mean, so to sleep through it, is probably a really good recipe. Um, not everybody's able to achieve that. So congratulations. Mm. And that and that's key, Dr. Sanders, and how you described it when we think about these clinical trials. There is no cure yet for Alzheimer's, but ways to manage some of, of these symptoms uh, that, that patients are experiencing. That's the goal? That is often the goal. And it's in many ways, more powerful than any medication that I could prescribe or, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say at least as powerful as any of the medications that are being studied in in clinical trials. Probably the best approach going forward is having a, a care partner like Sandy who is invested and observant in 
in the the care team, if you will, of, of anybody who has Alzheimer's disease. It's it's the the person who's with them and the medication together. That's probably going to be the the best way forward. Mm. Uh, Sandy, uh, you are George's uh, caregiver, and, and I wanted to talk with you about that um, and you know how uh, you get support and how you've been doing since his diagnosis. Uh, well, I actually what really gives me my sanity is that I work full time as well, and and I can I work remotely most of the time, and and it gives me some space when I have and some independence when I can go to the office for, for a while or a day or whatever. It also helps him <clears throat> not be so dependent on me because he, that's part of the spiral too. Is, oh, I can't do anything. He's doing a lot and he does a lot. We have a great support network. Uh, he has three other brothers. So there were four boys in his family. They all live very close. One of them lives three houses away from us. So uh, we, and we, our kids, we got lots of grandkids and everybody is, is, um, kind and caring and, and they love their grandpa and want to do stuff with them. So, uh, we're very blessed. We live in a nice area where a smaller area and all of our neighbors know each other and watch out for each other. So, uh, we are blessed. We are very, very blessed. And we do say that mm. daily. So um, that's about it. Yeah, it's been good. And I drove a glass of wine at night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) Well, it's been so good to hear from both you and George uh, sharing your story with us. George, we wish you the best. Thank you so much for your time today on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You've been hearing Sandy and George Carlino from Milford, Connecticut. Now, I wanted to mention the Connecticut chapter of the Alzheimer's Association offers support to families and caregivers in English and in Spanish from experts in the field of dementia. The Alzheimer's Association has a 24-7 helpline. That's 800-272-3900, 800-272-3900. And there's also more information at alzalz.org slash ct. Staying with us where we live, Dr. Amy Sanders, Medical Director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center. And we're going to talk more after the break about findings from new research on Alzheimer's and how people can work to prevent cognitive decline. We're here to also help answer your questions as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're learning about research into Alzheimer's today, highlighting new studies that identify factors that increase the risk of cognitive decline later in life. Now, people are usually diagnosed with Alzheimer's after the age of 65, but there is a younger onset population. And those with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia can live from 2 to 20 years after diagnosis. And dementia is the umbrella term for a set of symptoms, and Alzheimer's causes dementia. Other types of dementia include vascular, Lewy body, and mixed dementia. With us here on Zoom is Dr. Amy Sanders, director of the Hartford Healthcare, medical director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center, and a, a medical scientific advisory council member at the Alzheimer's Association Connecticut chapter. Uh, Dr. Sanders, I've mentioned there was a new yet-to-be-published research that was presented at this International Alzheimer's Association conference in San Diego recently. I wanted to talk with you about some of those studies, and I, I wanted to begin with the EXERT study, which focused on how exercise, even mild stretching, can prevent or reduce cognitive decline. So can you talk about that study? I'd be happy to. This is actually one of my favorite studies or, or uh, sets of results that were uh, announced at uh, the recent conference. So this was a study, a long study, actually, and many times in clinical research, longer is better. Mm -hmm. So they studied um, older adults who had mild cognitive impairment. Mild cognitive impairment is a condition that sort of lies between normal cognitive aging and a dementia-like Alzheimer's disease. Many times we think it's due to underlying Alzheimer's pathology, but many times we think it's not due to underlying Alzheimer's pathology. So it's a very heterogeneous state. And uh, in this study, in the EXERT study, uh, all of the participants had mild cognitive impairment. And then they were assigned randomly to an exercise arm or a just live your life normally, no exercise arm. And what is really great about the findings from this study is that the exercisers, some of them did aerobic exercise and some you know, fairly strenuous exercise, but others did some stretching. And both active groups did not decline cognitively over the period of the study, which as I mentioned was a year. So if you're somebody who has mild cognitive impairment and you can buy yourself a year without any additional cognitive decline, that is some very powerful stuff. So even just light stretching, you don't have to race, walk, or swim, uh, laps and laps and laps. Some, some light stretching, a little bit of yoga, probably even some, some chair yoga. The, the moral of the story is get moving, and that actually can be protective of, of cognition. Mm. The group who had no physical activity declined significantly over that year-long study period. 
I'm glad that you mentioned that we don't have to be out there <laughs> running laps uh, to help uh, you know uh, minimize cognitive decline. That stretching uh, even makes a difference. Something you said earlier when we talk about uh, what you might see in normal aging with memory loss versus if you know it's related to dementia. Can you differentiate those for us, uh, for listeners who might be listening and, you know, might be wondering if there are some uh, signs that they're they're dealing with something more uh, than just regular aging uh, and cognitive decline? I would be very happy to because there are a lot of misconceptions out there in the world about these very questions. Once upon a time, we did consider that memory loss was a normal part of aging. Oh, grandma doesn't know who I am anymore, but that's just because she's old. Now we know better. And memory loss, actual measurable memory loss, is never a component of normal cognitive aging. That said, there are things that happen as a normal part of the, the aging brain. Probably one that people experience the most is what we call the tip of the tongue phenomenon. Who is that actor? Who was the man who beat Billie Jean King in the Battle of the Sexes tennis tournament in the early 1970s? That was one of my famous tip of the tongue phenomena, my own personal one. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if, it, if the word that you're looking for, the name that you're looking for comes back to you more often than not, and not necessarily immediately. Sometimes it's seconds, sometimes it's minutes, but it can be hours, days, weeks. I had one recently myself that was months long. And suddenly it just popped into my head one day when I was at work. So that, that's a tip of the tongue phenomenon. It is aggravating as all get out, but it is not usually pathological. It's benign. Mm -hmm. And many people experience that. In fact, sometimes that's the, the presenting reason that a patient comes to our clinic and so then we examine them and we do an assessment. And, and if everything looks normal, then, we, you know, we can say to them, this is, this is normal, normal cognitive aging. So the tip of the tongue phenomenon, big part of that. Also, it takes longer to learn how to do something new. You can get there in the end. It's just that it's going to take you a little bit longer. And that applies also to things that you already know how to do. So if you're a say a jigsaw puzzle aficionado, you might not put the puzzles together quite as quickly as you did 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you can still do the puzzle. So sometimes being a little bit slower in learning new information and the tip of the tongue phenomenon, those are two of the big components of normal cognitive aging. Mm. Memory loss is not a component of normal cognitive aging. Thank you for that explanation. You're hearing Dr. Amy Sanders, Medical Director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center, as we talk about Alzheimer's and new research about uh, some of the predictors of cognitive decline later in life. If you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Sanders, we got a question from a listener on Facebook. Maggie writes, I watched my great aunt live for 10 years with Alzheimer's. And I'm wondering, is it genetic? And also, how long on average can people live with Alzheimer's? What can you tell her? Well, as I said earlier, there is no universal playbook for Alzheimer's disease. So patients frequently ask me, so what's going to happen to me? And my answer to that and my answer this morning, unfortunately, is that my crystal ball is cloudy. 
very difficult to predict the course of the disease in any given individual. We know that there are things that occur commonly, but just because they occur commonly doesn't mean that they're going to happen to someone's great aunt. So, and, and as I was said earlier, the, the usual natural history of the disease can be anywhere from two to 20 years after diagnosis. So um, it's hard to predict what is actually going to happen to any, any one particular individual. So if you have relatives in your family that have Alzheimer's or another dementia, uh, when we think about what researchers know and some of the risk factors working on prevention, that's key? We are more and more coming to the understanding, the realization that probably preventing Alzheimer's disease is going to be a much better approach than attempting to cure Alzheimer's disease once it has started. And we're really starting to see some powerful and somewhat unexpected uh research findings coming out that tell us just how far back in life we really need to be thinking about protecting our brains. And, and the question uh, originally was, is Alzheimer's disease genetic? And there my answer is, well, sort of. Mm-hmm. So early onset Alzheimer's disease sometimes is familial. That, though, tends to be a consequence of somebody in the family having what we call an autosomal dominant genetic mutation. You can think of that as a kind of genetic problem that causes destiny. If you have one of these mutations, you are going to get Alzheimer's disease because they are, as we say in the medical jargon, highly penetrant, which means that if they're present, they show the effect. So if there's a mutation like that in a family, about 50% of the descendants of the first person who had that mutation are going to have Alzheimer's disease. That, however, is a very, very tiny portion of all of the people who have Alzheimer's disease. Mm. There's another genetic risk factor, not destiny this time, but just a risk factor that increases vulnerability to developing Alzheimer's disease. And that is called the epsilon allele of the ApoE gene. And if one has one bad copy of the the risk allele, so an allele just means that there are different flavors of, um, of, of the genetic code that it can occur at a particular point on a particular gene. And in the ApoE gene, the epsilon allele has three uh, three variations. And if you have the bad one, then your risk is increased relative to people who don't have that uh, bad uh, allele, but it's not destiny. And then some people have uh, have no risk allele and have no family members that who have had an autosomal dominant uh, uh, genetic mutation, and and those people just have sort of average risk. So there are some things that enhance your vulnerability to Alzheimer's disease. They can be genetic, and there are things that uh, really are destiny that someone is going to develop Alzheimer's disease, also genetic, but very rare. I wanted to get back to some of the other uh, new research that came out at this International Alzheimer's Association conference, Dr. Sanders, including uh, findings on high blood pressure during pregnancy, how that's linked to increased risk of dementia. Can you tell us more there? This was actually kind of mind-blowing for me. We know that so-called vascular risk factors, including hypertension, high blood pressure, 
uh, increase the risk of cognitive decline and, and dementia as one ages. Probably the most common kind of dementia that is out there is actually a mixed dementia, a combination of Alzheimer's disease with vascular disease in the brain. So keeping one's blood sugar, one's cholesterol, one's blood pressure under good control, really powerful protective factors. And here we're seeing in, in the uh, study about high blood pressure that high blood pressure in pregnancy, even if it is only gestational, meaning only during the pregnancy, is actually a fairly profound risk factor for the development of later cognitive decline and dementia. That is, you know, I'm certainly not omniscient in the world of Alzheimer's research, but that's the first time I've ever heard anything remotely like that. And it really means that, that women who are of childbearing age are preparing or to have a child or have had children really need to be monitored in a, in a longstanding chronic way for, uh, you know, their, you know, their, their, the status of their cognition and to keep their risk factors, their vascular risk factors under the best control possible, because if they don't, badness ensues, cognitive decline and dementia associated with um, hypertension during pregnancy. Yeah, there's definitely a role when you think about uh, prenatal care, but also, as you mentioned, even after a child or children are born, if, if a woman had a hypertension that um, just being monitored uh, through her primary care physician in terms of, of uh, later decline. Indeed. Uh, when we think about the treatment, uh, we've been talking about, um, obviously, some uh, studies related to risk factors uh, and predictors. Uh, we know that Alzheimer's drugs are expensive. Uh, last year, I think it was Adjuhelm received accelerated approval by the FDA. It's priced at $56,000 a year and Medicare limited coverage to patients in clinical trials. And I understand the drug is not selling well, partly because clinicians are not sure that it works. What are your thoughts on, on this treatment, Dr. Sanders? Well, I think Aducanumab, which is the generic name for, for Aduhelm, was a paradigm-shifting event in uh, the history of Alzheimer's disease. It was approved as the first disease-modifying medication in Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, it was also the first medication that had been approved for Alzheimer's disease in many, many, many years. There were many issues. It was highly controversial, mm -hmm. partly because that accelerated approval that you mentioned was granted on the basis of what's called an intermediate outcome. And that was the level of amyloid plaque, one of the things that we think causes Alzheimer's disease. So Aduhelm could, uh, Aduhelm's success was based on the amount of amyloid plaque that it could clear from the brain, not on what happened to any given individual who was taking it. So did it have a cognitive benefit that wasn't required under the approval? So there was, there was much controversy. And as of April of this year, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid in Washington, D.C. have uh, ruled that aducanumab and all of the other monoclonal antibody medications that might come to FDA approval are going to be under the heading of something called coverage with evidence development, which means that they can be prescribed only in the context of a clinical trial. So that's one reason that I, I cannot at the moment 
prescribe aducanumab if I if I wanted to because I'm not part of a clin- my my practice is not part of a clinical trial. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in coming years because there is is really a lineup now of new monoclonal antibodies that are coming down the pipeline. And one very promising one is has already uh, applied to the FDA for the same kind of accelerated approval that Aducanumab or mm-hmm. Aduhelm got uh, last year. Uh, Lisa from Watertown sent in a question and wanted to know, you know, what studies being done regarding effects of prescription drugs, such as for high blood pressure medication, for example, on mental capacity. I am not myself familiar at this time with any clinical trials that are looking in particular at antihypertensive medications. We do know <clears throat> that people who take beta blocking drugs, that, that there can be a, a cognitive association there, although certainly no level of, of causality has, has, has ever been proven. Now, it may be that there is a trial going on and I'm, I'm simply not aware of it. But uh, we do know that certainly managing one's risk factors, and that includes uh, taking, if necessary, taking medication to control blood pressure, uh, as I do, is, is an important step for prevention uh, for all of us. Again, you're hearing Dr. Amir Sanders here on Where We Live, Medical Director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center. As we talk about new research into Alzheimer's, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, One other study that I wanted to highlight uh, before we run out of time, Dr. Sanders, is related uh, to uh, the consumption of ultra-processed food and how that relates to to cognitive decline. Uh, Can you explain a little bit more about that study. Yes, this was a big study uh, conducted in Latin America. It enrolled more than 10,000 people, and it separated them into groups according to the proportion of highly processed foods in their diet. Highly processed food, meaning things like uh, very white bread, uh, potato chips, pizza, fast food that you get from, you know, Arby's or Wendy's or McDonald's or a place like that. Um, convenience foods, also anything that has been processed in order to have a particularly long shelf life, that's an ultra-processed food. So the more that you can back down to the the real natural ingredients, cook your own meals, the better off you're going to be. But in this study, they found that uh, individuals who had high consumption of ultra-processed foods faced cognitive decline. And it, so there were four groups, those who had the most uh, highest consumption of ultra-processed foods, and then a little bit less, and then a little bit less, and then the, the, the final group was the group that had the least amount of ultra-processed foods in their diet. The three groups that were not the group that had the minimum amount of ultra-processed foods in their diet, all three of those groups experienced global cognitive decline at a rate of 28%. That's quite eye-catching. And uh, then when they looked in particular at what kind of thinking was affected, it was what we call their executive function, which is how we divide our attention. It's how we make decisions. It's what we rely on to get through the day every day. 
So that was in particular impacted. And the people who had the, the smallest consumption of ultra processed foods in their diets did not experience that decline. And uh, boy, did that make me go home and, and scan my pantry for the good things and perhaps the not so good things. This doesn't mean that you can't go to a cookout and, and have a hot dog. That's not gonna you know, give you Alzheimer's disease later. But overall, dietary mindfulness and trying to eat as much you know, whole grain and, and um, uh, unprocessed food is also a big step that all of us can take toward preventing Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Uh, before we end, uh, Dr. Sanders, I did want to bring up there was a feature in the magazine Science last month that talked about an investigation into a drug from Casava Sciences, and Science magazine listed other Alzheimer's drugs, including the one we talked about earlier, Ajahelm, all mired in controversy. Why is there this credibility problem in your view? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I think some of the credibility problem with the whole aducanumab, aduhelm controversy arose from the fact that um, there was an FDA uh, study group, uh, an an advisory group that reviewed the evidence and gave a unanimous sort of thumbs down to the FDA. And usually the FDA follows the advice of such advisory groups. It's not required to. Their advice is not binding. But they, uh, in this instance, they did not. And there were also some concerns about the data because, in fact, the clinical trial for aducanumab was terminated for futility. It didn't meet its outcome measures. And then some secondary analyses were performed, and then a, a what we call a signal was, was found. And, you know, some people wonder about whether there was some, you know, a little bit of data manipulation there. I think that has really been studied extensively and that there probably is a signal there, but then there are other controversial issues regarding uh, side effects and that sort of thing. This is the, this was the first drug though. And oftentimes when there's a a, a first drug, it kind of um, paves the way for for other drugs to, to come along that are ultimately going to be much more successful. That certainly happened with the, the class of drugs called the cholinesterase inhibitors on which we rely on a daily basis uh, for the treatment of symptoms along with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Aducanumab and the other monoclonal antibodies that come along, they actually are attacking the underlying mechanisms, which is why we call them disease-modifying drugs, not symptom-modifying drugs. So, you know, and and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars go into the research to develop one of these medications. And patients certainly are, are desperate to have them. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of pressure on uh, the Alzheimer's community to, you know, let's get it right. You've been hearing Dr. Amy Sanders, director, medical director of the Hartford Healthcare Memory Care Center, also a medical scientific advisory council member at the Alzheimer's Association Connecticut chapter. A pleasure to hear from you, Dr. Sanders. We hope you come back sometime. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Dr. Carl Hill from the Alzheimer's Association about new research on how experiencing discrimination and racism increases the risk of memory loss. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. During the recent International Alzheimer's Association conference, several studies were released that found living in disadvantaged areas or having low wages put people at greater risk for dementia. There's also new research in how experiencing discrimination and racism increases the risk of memory loss. With us now on Zoom is Dr. Carl Hill, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Alzheimer's Association. Dr. Hill, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm quoting from the Alzheimer's Association report this year that shows black people are about twice as likely and Hispanic Latinos are about one and one and a half times as likely to have Alzheimer's or other dementias because of various experiences of structural racism and inequities. Now there's new research comprising nearly 1,000 middle-aged adults that shows racism was associated with lower memory scores, and these associations were driven by black individuals. So tell us more about this study and your reaction. I tell you, really, really uh, interesting research presented at at the uh, the AIC uh, just last week, you know, and so in this particular study, um, you know, the respondents were able to provide, you know, self-reports of exposure to uh, racism, both interpersonal, you know, that is an individual, you know, treating, you know, them unfairly and then their perceptions of institutional, you know, racism. And there were reports, you know, there was a, a relationship that showed um, lower uh, episodic memory among all uh, ethnicities, but the strongest association among uh, Black African American uh, participants, and in another study, uh, you know, you know, that, uh, shared by researchers from uh, the University of California at Davis, a study of uh, almost 500 individuals, including uh, Asian, African American, Black, Hispanic, Latino, and uh, white uh, respondents. Uh, you know, the people age. And 90 and above individuals who experienced wide ranging discrimination throughout life had lower memory uh, in late life compared to those who experienced little to no uh, discrimination. So two very uh, insightful and important studies showing the relationship between uh, racism and how it can influence a memory over the life course. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from here, Dr. Hill, in terms of the role for, for policymakers? Well, first, I, you know, I think we really have to understand the different types of racism. You know, it's important to know uh, that, you know, institutional racism, you know, lies in unfair policies and uh, discriminatory, discriminatory practices uh, that, you know, institutions uphold, right? And then interpersonal racism is that, you know, when individuals interact with others uh, that, you know, really causes stress, you know, in their lives. We the Alzheimer's Association had a special report just last year that found uh, respondents, uh, African-American and Hispanic Latino respondents, uh, uh, reported perceptions of racial discrimination in the dementia care system, right? So if getting a timely and proper diagnosis is you know, fundamental and so important for all people, uh, if, if these uh, populations who are disproportionately affected, meaning they're more likely to have Alzheimer's or, or another dementia, if they perceive that they will be treated unfairly because of their race, they're less likely to engage a neurologist or a dementia care uh, specialist. So it's important that we do all that we can to understand uh, racism, uh, that we include uh, discrimination in our discussions of risk factors for um, as, as unique risk factors for these communities and populations. And at the Alzheimer's Association, we're really taking a proactive uh, 
uh, look at partnering with national and community-based organizations to make sure that we're delivering our resources to communities in a way that's culturally uh, responsible, you know, meaning uh, that we're working with uh, African-American, Hispanic, Latino colleagues to help us to be sure that, that uh, we're, we're very mindful of our unconscious bias and we're pursuing health equity in all the ways that are, that, that are, that are just and that could be effective. That's important. And when we think about, you know, other um, ways that people are impacted, uh, even types of trauma someone experiences, maybe a loss of a parent or living in a neighborhood with higher crime rates, you know, how that can impact cognition. What can you tell us, Dr. Hill? Absolutely. When you think about this, you know, racism is a trauma, you know, that leads to uh, increased stress, you know, and and we, we know can result in uh, biological changes such as inflammation. You know, and inflammation is a known risk factor for uh, cognitive difficulties, including dementia, right? So, but because of structural racism, which is the combination of of a number of factors, you know, it's institutions, it's culture, it's ideology, it's history. You know, people live in communities and neighborhoods, you know, many times because of redlining and, you know, they're, access to important resources like quality health care that you know does not include discrimination really is patterned by this structural racism that has occurred over time right and so you know because of this structural racism again it leads to poor access uh, to to quality health care and housing you know those who experience interpersonal discrimination are you know in the healthcare system for example are just not provided a pathway to lower that risk. And this becomes, you know, kind of a one-two punch, you know, for populations uh, that experience this type of depri- deprivation. So, you know, you know, researchers should study, you know, c- continue this study of racism, it, it, the different types of racism and how it can be a major uh, contributor to the increased risk, uh, dementia risk uh, for black and Latino populations. You've been hearing Dr. Carl Hill, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Alzheimer's Association. We'll be sure to to follow up uh, as, again, this is new research yet uh, published but highlighted at this international conference. We appreciate your time, Dr. Hill. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan with help from talk show intern Mira Raju. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.